Let's hear from God's word. Uh, The Bible reading this morning, it comes from Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if, by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that, just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, good morning, church. Uh, Some of you wondering who the heck is this guy. Um, My name is Mick, and I'm fairly new to the church. I've only been coming about a year, which isn't very long in the grand scheme of things. And... um, You'll get to see a little bit more of me over the next little while. I've got the next three sermons, which is very exciting, but also rather intimidating. When Peter asked, would I like to preach, and I'd like to preach on Romans, I said, definitely. I was very excited. And then I sat down with this passage. And it began to remind me of breakfast at my house. Uh, My son, Jacob, I'm not going to name drop you too much, mate. I don't want to embarrass him too much. But he has cornflakes for breakfast. And cornflakes are very light and easy to eat, but not entirely that nutritious. When he was younger, he used to eat porridge. But you know, with small kids and breakfast, and it tends to take a fair length of time for them to get through. So by the time it gets towards the end of the porridge, it's cold and it's soggy. And you know it's, it's good for you, but hard to get through. Uh, and Romans 5 is a bit like that. It's um, particularly if you look into the Greek, and I'm not going to flash my Greek credentials because they're not very flash. But when you actually look at the original text, Paul is breathtakingly brief at points. So it's, it's a fairly turgid passage, so we're going to spend some time pulling it apart. Uh, in fact, so much so that when we get to sin in the next two weeks, you'll actually look forward to that, because that will be a bit more like conflict. Looking forward to sin, don't quote me on that. 
Um, I want to start with a couple of word pictures to get us in the mental space for reading this passage correctly. Um, Firstly, are there any AFL fans here this morning? Otherwise, this goes flat. Leave your hands up if you have merchandising like jumpers and beanies and that kind of thing. Cool. Leave your hand up if you go to games and you wear it. All right. Leave your hand up if you do the same thing to watch a game in front of the TV. There are some diehard fans here (laughs) who actually, thank you, you can put your hands down there, who actually put their their jumpers on and the beanies and whatever and sit down to watch the TV. And why is that? Because we're fundamentally wired to identify with groups. We're fundamentally tribal. We want to be part of something. We want to have a uniform that identifies us as being part of a group. And to to move on a little bit from that, uh, I want to go back a few years. I used to be an avid cricket fan in the 80s when one had to be used to disappointment. Um, I don't know if any of you watched cricket in the 80s, but the Australian cricket team were up against the West Indies at the height of their powers, and so we were very used to, to losing. The thing was is that if you're a cricket fan, of course, all your hopes laid in success or otherwise of the Australian cricket team, which in turn relied upon one man, and that one man was the captain, Alan Border, because Alan Border would often come out in the middle order and the openers would have collapsed nice and early, and so it was all ahead of them. And if he succeeded, then the team succeeded, and if he failed, then the team failed. And so much so in Australian society, I think that people are far more interested in the Australian cricket captain than they are in the Prime Minister, because we're used to the Prime Minister letting us down or being maybe corrupt or stabbing someone else in the back to get the job. But if the Australian cricket captain's involved in a scandal of tampering with a ball, it's a national catastrophe. Now, the reason I say all that is that when we turn to the passage this morning, we'd be slightly misplaced if we were thinking about Adam the individual or Jesus of Nazareth, the first century Jewish prophet. Not that it's unimportant that Jesus was a real man of the first century or an important question to consider whether or not Adam was a historical figure. But Paul is far more concerned with these people as, as corporate identities, as types, as people you are on their team of. So a big thrust of this sermon this morning is, are we on team Adam and identify with Adam and all that it means to be in Adam, or are we on team Christ? Uh, another thing that sits in the back of this passage, and we're not going to pull it apart too much, but it comes out in bit, bits and pieces, is, is the following. My son is 16 on Tuesday. Hey! Round of applause. Uh, and one of the things that comes with a, a child turning 16, of course, is that there has to be driving lessons, and I'm really looking forward to that. Um, I'm not a patient man by any stretch of the imagination. And, and paying for proper lessons, and at some point, a car. And so I could say to him, look, mate, when you turn 18, I'm going to promise give you a car buy you a car. Now, imagine a bit of a hypothetical. You've got a child who's a teenager and you make that promise. When you turn 18, I'm going to buy you a car. And they they try to get their L's and then they fail to get their L's and they try again and eventually they get them and go through driving lessons. And there's a a whole series of disasters and eventually they turn 19 and no car materialises. And they leave home and you get empty nest syndrome so you decide to adopt a child. That child becomes 16 And you say to the child, yes, definitely, we're going to buy you a car when you turn 18 and you get your driver's license. And you even buy the car beforehand. They can see this car in front of them. And then one day, the elder son comes home and they start to have a conversation about driving. And the question remains for the younger child, well, hang on, he was this older uh, brother, adopted brother, was promised a car when they turned 18 and it didn't materialize. Can I trust the promise that has been made to me? And that's the bigger drama in Romans, isn't it? that Paul is addressing a church full of Gentiles, full of Greeks, and they're going, what about the Jews? The promises that God made to Israel 
over hundreds of years, and the church largely consists of Gentiles. So how can we trust God? I mean, if Romans, and, and this is what I'm driving at, is that we need to think corporately this morning about who we belong to and who we identify with. If we come to Romans and read it with 21st century questions of a 1st century text through a 16th century lens, did you get all that? <laughs> through the Reformation, then it's all about us as individuals. And then so you fly past Romans 9 through 11, or you fly past all the references that Paul makes to the Jew first and then to the Gentile, and you make no sense of the comments that Paul makes this morning about the law. So I want us to have that broader picture in mind as well. There's a big thing going on here that's like, for 21st century people, it's a bit odd. I mean, hands up, who's Jewish? No one. I did that once preaching on Galatians, and someone stuck their hand up and I went... I didn't even know what to say because it's just so rare, right? But lying behind that question of who do we identify with, are we on Team Adam or Team Christ, is what happened to Team Moses, Team Abraham? Where does that go? What does that tell us about the character of God? Anyway, and the final kind of introductory note is that there's an elephant in the room holding a can of worms. And that, of course, is the question of, is Adam an historical figure? Such an important question that Pete and I have talked about having a teaching night next year where we can talk about that if you're interested. Anyway, enough of the introductory comments. Um, what am I going to say about the passage? Well, my big idea, and so you can carry this as we go through and see if we actually address this, is to live in Adam is to live under the reign of sin and death. To live in Christ is to live under the reign of grace and to exercise dominion as Adam was meant to. So we'll come full circle as we, we, we go through. So my first point then is being in Adam means living under the reign of sin and death. There is an old saying that there are two realities of life, and there's death and taxes, right? But if you're a multinational company, of course, it's very easy to dodge taxes. So that leaves us with death, but also with sin. And so in the passage, we, we learn that sin brought death um, by removing access to immortality. Um, you're going to learn a little bit about my quirky habits and interests. Is anyone familiar with this TV series, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, or the movie, or the book? I'll give you a brief promo. The Earth is a giant computer designed to find the question of the meaning of life, of which the answer is 42, and it's blown up three minutes before it gives the answer. It's written by Douglas Adams, who I think believed that life was absurd. It's certainly the picture you get from the book, and he was a keen follower of Richard Dawkins, who's an evolutionary biologist who tells us that life, of course, is absurd. And apart from following the, the, the career of this fellow, um, Arthur Dent, who's the central figure, there are all these little vignettes, all these little side characters who are rather ridiculous. And one of them is, is called Wow Bagger the Infinitely Prolonged. Um, wow Bagger the Infinitely Prolonged was, indeed is, one of the universe's very small number of immortal beings. Most of those who were born immortal instinctively know how to cope with it, but Wow Bagger was not one of them. Indeed, he had come to hate them, the load of serene expletives deleted. He had his immortality inadvertently thrust upon him by an unfortunate accident with an irrational particle accelerator, a liquid lunch, and a pair of rubber bands. So the point is, is there's someone who is born mortal, becomes immortal quite by accident, and has no way of, of coping with it. And so the story follows that he travels about the universe, insulting everyone in the universe in alphabetical order. Now, other than, than sharing some of my peculiar tastes, I don't know about you, but when I come to sit down and think about heaven and what happens when I die and the resurrection, I have absolutely no conception whatsoever of what that means or what that might be like. 
I don't know if you get visions of sitting on a cloud, playing a harp and listening to Hillsong for eternity. Um, the jokes don't get any bigger, better than this. Um, and that seems rather dull, and you start the question, well, what's the other place like? But my point is, is that when you come to Genesis, it's, and the whole narrative, is, I want to explain what happened, is that it's not so much that Adam was under a death sentence per se, but they lost access to immortality. So think about what happens in the garden, right? You've got Adam is created first, and Adam is given the commandment in the singular, you can eat of any tree in the garden, but you can't eat this particular one. And rather interestingly, he's not told about the tree of life. So we're meant to understand that he has no idea that if he continues and he obeys this single commandment, that he'll have immortality. He just doesn't know. And then God creates Eve out of his side or possibly elsewhere. If you're interested in what I think it might be, come ask me afterwards. Um, And then she's beguiled by the serpent. But she doesn't break the commandment because the commandment wasn't to her, which is kind of interesting. So it's not Eve who sins per se. Eve is just deceived. And then Adam, the dummy, stood right next to her and he eats the fruit. The single one commandment that he's given, the one thing that you're not meant to do, and he does it. And then the passage implies that they, they enjoy conjugal rights and their children actually born inside the garden. And then it gets to the point where God says, oh, hang on, things might get a bit crowded here. And they're not in a particularly good state. So he ejects them from the garden east into Eden. The, the phrase that's used in the warning is, in the day of eating, dying, you will die, which is kind of peculiar. That's Hebrew for you. But it's not the sense of a death sentence. It's not on the very day that you eat of this, you will be executed, but that you will suffer the consequences. You will be ejected from the garden. And so this confusing idea that expands our imaginations of immortality is conditional upon obedience. Human beings are not born immortal. That's, that's all Greek platonic thinking that we inherit. As I go on, you will hear me disabuse you of various myths about heaven and resurrection and immortality and all these sorts of things. But it's, it's therefore worth noting about what it means to be an Adam then is to be somehow captured in this initial act of disobedience and have lost access to immortality. But Paul is not critiquing what being mortal then, or being physical, or having an appetite, or enjoying sex, or indeed working. All these things that we might tie to life outside the garden, none of these things are implied as being, quote-unquote, in Adam, in the sense in which Paul implies it. Because I think we fall into a kind of hyper-spiritualism, don't we? that says, you think about what it means to be in sin, in Adam it means all these things that we don't really enjoy, we don't understand, or we get wrong often, like sex and work and food and all these sorts of other things. So to be in Christ, therefore, is not to be ashamed of any of those things. Paul goes on in the passage and he talks about, and and, and this again, if you don't have this broader narrative of, of understanding what's going on with Israel, you don't get Things like in verse 13, sin was indeed in the world before the law, but sin is not reckoned where there is no law. And when he says law, he means Torah. He means the Jewish law. He's not talking about legalism. Again, it's not that thing of reading uh, Romans through the lens of the 16th century and the issues over the Reformation and legalism and the Catholic Church, etc. It's about the Jewish law which was given to bring the people of Israel life. It was their covenant agreement. It's the equivalent of Adam's commandment, don't eat of this tree, except there's a few more 
commandments in there, right? So Paul, as a Jew, is thinking of sin primarily as breaking the Torah because without Torah, you can't be guilty of breaking it. You can't have it reckoned to you. You can't have it written on your ledger, as it were. So in other words, Adam is a kind of proto-Israel. That's how we're meant to understand him primarily, above all other arguments about whether or not he was a historical figure. So you've got Genesis 1, which is the cosmic creation story that talks about the entire of created reality as a temple which God's to dwell into. And then we home in on human individuals and you've got this picture of, of people called to bear God's image as Israel was, as indeed we are through Christ. And so you see in Adam a kind of pattern that plays its way out in uh, Genesis 1 to 11, and in fact through the entire of the Old Testament of a commandment given, sin, an act of judgment, and then some act of mitigation. So God boots them out of the garden, but he gives them clothing, for example. And so this whole logic then is that Adam is given a commandment and the language of transgression is used. If you're given a commandment, then you can break that, otherwise it's just sin in the general sense. And then we see later on in the passage in in verse 20 where Paul says, well, the law was given so that sin might abound all the more. The Old Testament has has a rather more positive picture of that. The the law was the Israelites' access to life. I mean, who's read Psalm 119? It's a long, long, long commentary on the the law. And anyone, I, I dare you to go home today and read Leviticus and then read Psalm 119 with feeling. It's, it's a bit of a drag, is it not? And yet the law for the Israelites was their access to life. It was their way back to Eden, if you will. And Paul says, well, that's all well and good, but nonetheless what it does ultimately is reveal human sinfulness all the more. Don't eat that of that tree. You give a, a, a commandment to a child. You know, you can have one Tim Tam now or two Tim Tams later. You're not allowed to take that Tim Tam. I'm going out the room. Nine times out of ten, you'll walk back into the room to an empty table. It just seems to be built into us, and this is what Paul picks up on, on the nature of sin. So sin in the passage, in Paul's understanding, is ultimately universal. We somehow share in Adam's Torah breaking, his act of breaking the law, even when we don't consciously break the law, which is why Paul can say earlier in Romans, when Gentiles who do not possess the law do instinctively what the law requires, these, though not having the law, are a law unto themselves. A typically dense Pauline passage. But what he's saying is that when you do the right thing, that's the law of God in your hearts. And when, of course, you do the wrong thing, you're going against your conscience within your heart and you're indeed breaking the law. More seriously then, or as if sin isn't serious enough, apart from Christ, we live under the reign of death. Death, of course, is a universal experience, is it not? Hands up who's had a close friend or family member die. Most of the hands in the room. Most of us have been touched by death and all of us will be touched by death. And barring the return of Christ, all of us will experience death regardless of the nature of our sins. So it doesn't matter whether or not you've broken Jewish law or you're a Gentile, which we are, uh, who's gone against their conscience, or as Christians, we've broken something, a commandment that's in, in the New Testament. Death is a universal experience. And it, it's kind of curious because as a scientist, I can see that death is a part of the natural order of things. It is the engine of creation of species. Sometimes it's even a fundamental act of, of parental care. 
octopi or octopuses, I'm not sure which is the, the correct um, word, are highly intelligent, even though they're entirely alien to us. An octopus se- seems over-engineered for its very short lifespan. Female octopuses often will lay their eggs and they'll look after them and protect them, and their very last act will be to waft water over the eggs to help them uh, break open so that the, the baby octopus can, can swim away and, and consume their mum, which is kind of gross when you think about it. My point is, is that intelligence doesn't seem to be enough. I mean, human beings are pretty intelligent, most of the human beings I know, and conscious, and we're able to think about death. I mean, I remember being a 10-year-old and, and first pondering um, my own mortality. And as I get older, I'm only 49, I know that's not very old, I ponder my mortality. And being a climate change scientist, I ponder the mortality of everyone in this room and indeed on this planet. And it's rather sobering. So, so death hangs over us in a way in which it doesn't hang over a worm or a cow or even my dog, who's fairly self-aware. Um, and we, we can feel the frustration of that. We can feel and anticipate our own impending doom. Uh, I'm not much of a poet or a reader of poetry, but I found this intriguing. Dylan Thomas's Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at the close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Though wise men at their end no dark is right, because their words had forked no lightning, they do not go gentle into that good night. Good men the last wave by, crowing how bright their frail deeds might have danced in a green bay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. The frustration of a life that ends seemingly too early and without having achieved all that we desire. Mourning the loss of our youth and watching our lives ebb away. Death sucks. (laughs) The other thing that death does, of course, is it shows up our arrogant pretensions and reduces all achievements to nothing, which sometimes is a good thing. Percy Shelley's Ozymandias. You might be familiar with this one. And on the pedestal those words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. A broken statue in the middle of a desert. Death sometimes also shows that we are nothing. Death, of course, also breaks relationships, and as the show of hands demonstrated, um, most of us have been touched by that. My dad died just short of the age of 64. He never met my wife or my child. And funnily enough, just to refer to my dog, I feel that keenly every day, my last dog, the loss, 16 years is too short a time to share with a creature uh, that you share and love so much with. And of course, as Paul reminds us, at the bottom of us, death is not merely organic or all the things of frustration that I've talked about, but we understand and perceive in that a judgment on our sins, don't we? There's something at the bottom of us. It's not just death itself, but what we might face afterwards and the sentence that hangs over that. Mortality is seen differently outside of the garden. And finally, death is also the weapon of the tyrant. 
be that the tyranny of war, of capital punishment, or indeed economic injustices like lack of health care, which leads to untimely deaths. Think about the gap in Australia, for example, between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders and non-Indigenous Australians in terms of things like life expectancy and access to health care. That is death being held over people. I won't sit down now. Hands up who's feeling a little depressed at all of that. Well, thankfully, we don't live under the reign of sin and death, do we? And Paul changes tempo in verses 15 to 21. And he presents a series of contrasts to show the abundance of life in Christ. And I'm not going to go through verse by verse, and, but if you look at the passage, you'll see that there are roughly three ideas that underline what Paul is saying. The first is that grace underlines everything that God does. And you can see that. Let me, let me read it. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died through the one man's trespass, much more surely have the grace of God and the free gifts in the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. And the free gift is not like the effect of the one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brings justification. So there's that language of, of grace, and it's, it's even in the concept of free gift. In the Greek, I won't do this too often, but in the Greek, the, the free gift, the, the word is charisma. You think about charisma as somebody's personality and their gifts that are, they didn't deserve and they don't earn, it just bestowed upon them. You know, someone's got personality, they have charisma. And the word in Greek for grace is charis. So charisma is literally a grace gift, a free gift, a bestowal of God, something that you don't deserve, something that you didn't earn, but something that you enjoy and are given so that you would enjoy. Undeserved gift. And it's described in the passage, firstly, is that it puts us into right relationship with God. We're justified. So you can think about justification and righteous in kind of legal terms, in forensic terms, in the law court type setting, but it's far more than that, isn't it? God is not just the supreme lawyer with the gavel in his, the hammer in his hand and banging down on the gavel. He's the loving father, the loving creator who embraces us. So being made righteous, should never associate with being made self-righteous or just moral standing or moral standards as if ethics and the code of law were the main thing that mattered. It's the relationship at the bottom of it. And that is where Paul would say that Israel went wrong in their, not their, just their love of, but their obsession of the Jewish law. Christians, of course, aren't, um, are not free of that risk either. Second to note that there's, um, the free gift is the act of grace from both the Father and the Son in what's fairly convoluted language, but again, to reread it, the, the free gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died through the one man's trespass, much more surely have the grace of God and the free gift in the grace of the one man Jesus Christ abounded for many. And this word abounded means really superabounded, uh, exceed, to overflow. In other words, it's a pretty dreary start to the passage, is it not? Talking about sin and death and the way in which we're weighed down and we're condemned on the one hand. And Paul's saying, well, on the other hand, and it's not like... I don't know if everyone's seen a set of balances or scales, an old-fashioned thing. Now we've got electronic scales and you weigh stuff on, but things weigh the same if the balance is level. 
And Paul's not talking about that. He's not just saying that on the one hand, you've got sin and death and corruption and condemnation. On the other hand, you've got grace and free gift, etc. And they, they, they balance out. It's like a flea on one side and an elephant on the other. Which way do you think the scales will lean? I hope you know. It, it makes me think of uh, Lake Eyre. I don't know if you've ever seen photos of Lake Eyre. Lake Eyre is uh, this like salt pan in the middle of Australia and it's dry and it's arid and so on. And every so often you get flooding, like a tropical cyclone in central Queensland. And this water trickles down slowly, slowly until Lake Eyre overflows. And with the, the overflowing of water comes fish and bird life. I'm a bit of a twitcher myself. And there's this abundance of life in a place that's otherwise seemingly lifeless and that's Paul's description of what we have in Christ this super abundance of blessing sin and death on this side God's grace on the other you get the picture and the third thing that runs through these verses is the righteousness of Christ and it's equated to his obedience uh, therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness led to justification and life for all. For just as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So you can see that there's its classic Hebrew way of paralleling ideas. Obedience is equal to the righteousness of Christ. And, and straight away when I read that, I think about Philippians 2. Obedience even to the point of death on a cross. Jesus in Matthew 5 says that he didn't come to trash or abandon or break the Jewish law, the Torah, but to fulfill it. And the way in which he fulfilled it is not in single acts of obedience, but a whole life characterized by obedience to God, of faith in God, no matter where it took him. And this is, I believe, why Paul spends a whole chapter talking about Abraham. What was the beginning of God's great rescue plan for humanity, if not the calling of Abraham and the forming of the people of Israel? And then they stuff it up, and then along comes Jesus and fulfills everything that Israel was meant to, everything that Adam was meant to, and everything that we're meant to do and can't on our own. And hence in Jesus, in this kind of ties up the logic of Paul, forms a new people, a new team. No longer on team Adam, but on team Jesus. That just happens to consist of Jewish and Gentile players. And the law is fulfilled. So three reflections then quickly on those ideas. Think, firstly, we need to be thankful for being made right with God. Now that seems a fairly obvious thing to say, does it not? But it's often the obvious things that are most profound. And it's a helpful reminder, I think, if you've been a Christian a long time, because we take things for granted. I've been a Christian about 30 years. And I don't think about what it means to be made right with God every day. Probably should. It's easier when you've been a Christian a short time to be really excited about these things. I've been brought into right relationship with God. God is my friend. And after two, three decades, you tend to become a bit jaded about these things. We need to be reminded, which is why we come to church every week to be told the same old thing over and over again, do we not? I mean, you know this stuff. I don't need to tell you, but I do, don't I? Or maybe you're a professional Christian, and I see a few of those in here. 
lecturers or academics or writers like myself or activists. We're all charging about the way in which we want to change the world. I'm a climate change activist and you know, I don't want to see a one and a half degree Celsius world, let alone a two or three or four degree Celsius world. That keeps me up at night. But all my action, all my writing needs to be grounded in the fact that I've been made in right relationship with God. So whatever it is you do in your week, as a Christian, we start there. And we need to be reminded of that and we need to uh, learn once more to be thankful for it. And the whole thing about Paul's superabundance of grace in this passage is also the fact that he talks about that judgment follows one trespass, the disobedient act of Adam, and yet justification follows many trespasses. The entire unfolding of human history, which is largely one of failure. And I guess thinking about that, that whatever it is you're struggling with this morning, nothing that you've done to date or can do is unforgivable. Nothing is beyond the superabounding, overflowing, abundant grace of Christ. And so that's something that we should rejoice in, is it not? So not just being thankful, but actually getting excited by and rejoicing. And I, and I say that as someone who's an INTJ, if you're familiar with Myers-Briggs. And so I tend to focus on ideas and concepts and so on. So for us thinkers, we need to learn how to rejoice a bit more. And so God's superabundant grace will carry us through the rough times, the hard times. And when we're struggling through sin, and we're going to struggle through sin in the next couple of sermons, um, always keep in the back of your mind that that grace is there to help you overcome. And thirdly, um, following Jesus' example, uh, we're meant to follow Jesus' example of obedience. The way in which Jesus achieved our forgiveness was being perfectly obedient to God's calling of him, which was what Abraham was meant to be, which is what Adam was meant to be. And so Jesus isn't just saviour, but Jesus is Lord and Jesus is our example. That's not always straightforward though. Anyone ever have those bracelets, the what would Jesus do? bracelets it's not wwjd but wwjhmd which doesn't make such good jewelry but what would jesus have me do but we need to study him as an example so then if where have we been to if apart from christ we live under the reign of sin and death and living under the reign of christ means a life of abundant grace thirdly those in christ reign in life through Christ. Verse 17. So I haven't been following the passage um, in its order, but kind of logically. If because of the one man's trespass, death exercised dominion through that one man, much more surely, and you'd expect Christ to have dominion, that would be logical, would it not? But what does it say? Will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness exercise dominion in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? That's you and you and you and God help us, even me. We exercise dominion. Those who have received the superabundance of grace and the grace gift of being right before God and with God have a vocation, and that vocation is to exercise dominion. We rule. But before we get ahead of ourselves, we always need to remember that it's through Jesus Christ because it relies upon our new, or if you like, renewed status. See, Adam was meant to have dominion. 
That's Genesis 1, 26 to 28, is it not? And he stuffed it up and then Israel got called and they stuffed it up and then Jesus was perfectly obedient and in Christ we have dominion. But it's only with that delegated authority. It's like a police officer. They have authority to enforce laws and even, God forbid, take life in certain situations under the law by virtue of their accreditation under the police act, which is state-based. So we have authority to exercise dominion in this world. And it's dominion in life as opposed to the dominion and the reign of death that we heard about a little bit earlier on. And it means living life to the full in the present. Christians talk a lot about life after death, misplacedly. And not enough about life after life after death, which is the resurrection from the dead. And surely not a great deal about life before death, which if you like in Romans is is chapters 12 through 16. Or as, uh, and I'm uh, channeling Tom Wright here, he also says that heaven is important, but it's not the end of the world. So our dominion to rule in life begins, when do you think? Somebody, somebody, Bueller? Now, precisely now. Is Christ raised from the dead? Yes. Let's get all penty, can we? Uh, Has Christ got all authority on heaven and earth? Matthew 28. What did he do then? He he sent us out to proclaim the gospel to all nations. Therefore, we have dominion right now to do precisely that and more. Christians don't always get that very well. An atheist gets this incredibly well. Terry Eagleton. I can highly recommend reading Terry Eagleton. He says, The kingdom of God brings to fruition a pattern of transfigurative moments imminent within it, a fractured narrative of justice and comradeship, which runs against the grain of what one might call its central plot. What does he mean? Transfigurative moments. It means that in our fractured world where everything seems wrong, the fact that we've been given given dominion now means we should expect to see good things happening right now. It's not all doom and gloom. The kingdom is being unfolded now. The church has a mission in the world to do of proclaiming the gospel, of carrying out deeds of justice and love, of peacemaking. And so we should expect to see lights you know, sh- you know, shining through... Um, totally stuffed the metaphor. Of, uh, let's try another one. Uh, you, know, you know when you've got... Um, a concreted um, footpath and you see a little weed or a flower come up through the cracks. That's the kingdom of God right now in our, in our reality. I was thinking of a blind that's got you know, the, the shafts of light through it, but I stuffed it, never mind. Um, a fractured narrative. So we, we live in a hopeless world. I have to hold on to this as a climate activist because things are looking pretty grim. And, you know, if you deal with refugees and you're looking at the tragedy that's unfolding in Syria and other parts of the world, you look at that and you think, where is the hope in that? But we believe in a God of hope. We believe that the kingdom of God is unfolding now and the place that it should be happening should be the church. Not always the case, unfortunately. And finally, dominion in life means being renewed Adams and Eves, which means we need to go back to the beginning, as in fact the Bible does. The end of Revelation brings us back to Eden in a sense, uh, which I talk about, I hate to do this, but I'm going to in my new book. Um, you'll hear more about it. And so we're meant to, just as Adam and Eve were called to care 
for the other than human creation, to tend Eden. Climate change does matter to Christians because this world is going to be renewed. And so it's an issue of dominion for all Christians. As we're reminded in Romans 8, a passage that I'd love to preach on, hint, hint, Peter, (laughs) when we get to it. But we also have a priestly role to represent God to the rest of the world. And if you read Genesis 2 and 3 very carefully, you will note that Adam and Eve weren't the only people about. Otherwise, who was Cain afraid of? And so part of our, our priestly calling as, as having dominion is, of course, to care for those outside the garden, those outside the church. I've known churches who are only interested in praying for and caring about, A, those inside the church and those outside, sorry, those inside the church and those outside the church who they know have been predestined to salvation and the rest they don't really care about. It doesn't really reflect Christian values. And finally, what do we understand and what shapes a concept of dominion ultimately. And that's a dirty word for many Christians I know, more progressive Christians and you're in the kind of ecological climate change space and they think, dominion's where we've gone wrong. But what do we learn most about dominion? In Philippians 2, for example, that dominion is Christ-like. It's self-emptying and self-effacing. In other words, it's cross-shaped. Not self-protecting or self-promoting like we see so much in today's politics that's popularist and and empire-serving. You'll be happy to know I'm at the end. We have been brought out of the dominion of death by the superabounding grace of God in Christ. Following his example of obedience, then, we're called to exercise dominion in life, knowing in part now, ruling in part now, but in the age to come, ruling with Christ into eternity, even if our small minds and hearts can't understand or grasp that yet. Amen.